This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Disney D&D. Monstrous Unicorns. Mid-50s Science Fiction Cinema. And the Premonitions Bureau. Did you know that both of us, Ken and Robin, have written books and games for Atlas Games? This month, they're featuring products by us on sale. We're so honored. Atlas Games is doing a special for our listeners only. Use coupon code KENANDROBIN23, that's spell out A-N-D in Ken and Robin, to save 20% on your games and books at atlas-games.com. Like Robin's action-packed feng shui and conspiracy-drenched over the edge. Or Ken's mini-mythos series of Cthulhu-themed children's books, like Goodnight Azathoth and Clifford the Big Red God. So who writes our banter in these Atlas ads? Our good friend Michelle Nephew. Sometimes I think that power goes to her head a little. Like last month where she had me singing Christmas carols for Weird Little Elf? Yeah, I kind of noticed that. Yeah, this month Atlas Games is running a sale on products that two of us have written for them. But what does that have to do with me repeating, Michelle is a goddess and we bow before her greatness? Her script cues are even worse. I can't stop hitting myself. Ken, just because it's in the script notes doesn't mean you have to actually slap yourself. It's it's audio. It's a podcast. Our listeners can't see you. I don't feel so good. The things we do for our listeners. But at least this month, they're getting 20% off on books and games written by the two of us. Just head over to atlas-games.com for your exclusive discount on feng shui, over the edge, and mini mythos products. Then use the coupon code KENANDROBIN23 at checkout. The rattle of dice, the crunch of Doritos, the thump of miniatures, the whir of the monorail, and the tinkling jingle of Tinkerbell's stars spreading across the sky over the castle welcome us into a magical kingdom that we call the Gaming Hut. Previously on this very channel, we talked about the open game license kerfuffle, even a brouhaha, I would characterize it, Robin. Yeah, I think it might have even gone beyond brouhaha to briefly to Donnybrook. Donnybrook, holy criminy. Yeah. But we're all better now because in that period of time, uh, we discussed that one of the possible threats that Wizards saw on the horizon was that Disney, for example under the OGL, could make their own Dungeons & Dragons. And as long as they don't call it Dungeons & Dragons, they could uh, hop, skip, and jump with a merry toot-toot and a wave of their three-fingered hand, make a Dungeons & Dragons, sell it in all their stores, and immediately achieve market dominance in the way that so many things have done from the kingdom of the mouse. And now, this is not something that we have evidence was going to happen. None whatsoever. That anybody at Not even was worried about. I was whimsical improv, but exactly. it seemed pretty credible as whimsical improv goes. Improv goes, yeah. And also, it's more fun than speculating on what meta would do with it, because the answer there was, it would suck. Problem <laughs> solved. Everyone would have powers from the waist up, but there'd be no legs. Exactly. You'd, you'd be playing a blockier, duller version of Dungeons & Dragons, which does not even bear thinking about. So we went to the more magical of uh, America's uh, rapacious IP oligarchs, and we're approaching Bob Iger, we can call him Bob, with our pitch for Disney 
D&D. And Robin, I don't know if you have one, but I have a killer Disney D&D pitch. Well, of course, I, I wouldn't have put this on the menu in order to just go, well, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> I guess that would be another one where you're goofy trying to pitch Disney F20 and failing. That's the short subject they put on Disney Plus to announce the game is coming. Yeah. So there we go. There's a third pitch right mm-hmm. there. Well, Ken, why don't you come out of the gate first? What is your pitch? All right. All right. My pitch, Robin, is a twofold pitch. As you know, and many people do not, including many, many game publishers, by overwhelming majority, the best-selling role-playing game in history is the Pokemon Junior role-playing game. It was done under a very brief license, I guess, but you played Pokemons, you juniored out there, it was sold to little children, like ages, I think, 6 to 10 or something, very, very small kids, and it sold... Just, it it sold the whole shelves bare in moments because it was Pokemon. Everybody loved the Pokemon back in the day. Another amazingly huge seller was the Bullwinkle game, which, again, a role-playing game, totally off everybody's radar, sold out, that was it. So, to my way of thinking, what that means is you have as your sort of intro a children's Dungeons & Dragons. And in the spirit of the Silly Symphonies, I thought we could call it the Dandy Dances. And what this is, is the little kids, they get a character sheet, and the character sheet is going to be a character they already know and love, you know, Elsa or Snow White or Mickey or whoever. And the characters go on little adventures, and mostly the way that you resolve things when you meet a new character is you have a dance. You have a song and a dance. And when you do that, there's ways that you can, maybe you have a plus one for a happy dance or plus one for a scary dance or whatever, but it's basically just, you've got a song and a dance, the other character dances with you, then they do you a favor and you do them a favor, or maybe they just do you a favor because they love you so much, or maybe they're still scary and then you have to run away, but there's also fun ways to run away. We talked about that previously, making running away tactically interesting and fun and uh, make it sort of a joyful process, keep a little of the scary off of it. Maybe there's fighting for older children. You have like a special purple border if you're going to do Maleficent versus, you know, Prince Charming. Maybe there'd be fighting, but I don't think you even need fighting really in this game because it's really just about exploring a magical kingdom, making friends, having adventures, doing favors for other creatures, getting, you know, a magical toy or a magical whatever, the sort of thing you might sell at a Disney gift shop. And then, you know, your little uh, childlike span of attention is gone. Off you go to watch Encanto for the 95th time. Your, your job here is done. That basic structure then builds the regular age, the adolescent and up age of the Dungeons and Dragons, which is called Magic Kingdoms. And in this, again, you're still playing a character. You can either build it yourself or you can play a pre-built character. And and by now you can not just play the straight up Disney characters, but maybe you could play, oh, I don't know, Robin, Luke Skywalker or Iron Man or a Muppet, you know, Fozzie Bear. All of Disney's IP is out there for us to play. Individual kingdoms would open up with individual kingdom setting books. So maybe the Marvel kingdom is off in the corner and you can't get to it for a couple of years, but eventually here comes the Marvel book and everyone wants to play the Marvel kingdom. So it's much like the old video game kingdom hearts where the part of the joy of that was you're in a bunch of a zillion different IPs and you're having wacky adventures. And so you're still having the fun of meeting new people, but by now the new people are all people that are monetized already by the good people at Disney IP uh, exploitation and management. 
And again, because you are coming off the dandy dances, it's not just about tactical fighting, although that now becomes part of it, but also tactical charming, tactical running away, tactical outthinking, and uh, yes, you know, magic and, and powers. And so all of those things, because they're baked into the original dandy dances setup, become intuitive, and you have a game that is not just, although it can be, go into a hole and uh, fight a monster. It's you know, the whole wide world of Disney, if I may coin a phrase. Right. So my pitch is a little closer to your second half. Yeah. But it's more tightly focused. All right. And so this is Disney Princess Adventures. Strong. Because those, of course, are the characters that are they're already marketed as sort of being together and being a, a, a adventuring band. Initially, you think Disney is like, okay, well, Mickey would be the sorcerer, of course. And uh, then... Uh, you know, Donald Duck would, the be, barbarian. would be the barbarian. But then you sort of run out of those characters pretty quick. And the attachment that people have these days to those characters is they're sort of more kind of mascots and stuff, right? You could you could do like a Chippendale thing, probably. But I think the princesses are the core of the, uh, you know, the, the marketing titan. And, of course, it's something that would deliver the thing that used to be thought of as impossible. And now, of course, the demographic is changing anyway. But, you know, a, a game specifically mostly targeting girls. And my idea is to be a little closer to F20. And there's two ways to go about this. Uh, one of them would be that your characters go to Adventure Academy and the specialties that you derive depend on, you know, who your homeroom teacher is. And the other one, of course, is just you get to play the princesses. And I think that idea number one is probably the one that corporate will ask us to have because they might be a little uneasy about people actually playing the characters. But we know as seasoned designers that people want to play the characters. And so we want to look at who exists and what classes that they could fit into. And it turns out that it's pretty easy to do already. Yeah. So for the ranger, we've got Merida. Uh, the newer princesses do fight and get into adventures and mm -hmm. get into physical dangers. So that helps us a lot. We've got Mulan mm -hmm. as the fighter. Raya can be the, the paladin because uh, uh, she's primarily a, a, a wielder of a sword, uh, but also uh, is operating in a sort of a realm of, of magic and getting along with dragons. Cinderella, of course, can be the, the illusionist, getting her powers from the help of the uh, fairy godmother. Elsa, of course, is a magic user. Who's I think that technically makes Cinderella a warlock, just throwing that out there, but Illusionist sounds better. Sure. And also, of course, as a magic user, all yep. you need to do there is reskin the magic missile, so it's ice and fireball, so mm. it's an ice ball and, and so forth. You can have a Mirabelle who buffs other magic users. And I think we, there are certain things that you would want to elide in a Disney product, so uh, you don't necessarily want to have people worshipping particular gods you want to slide out from under the whole cleric thing but that doesn't mean that you can't have a character who mostly centers on buff powers and helping everybody else out and also being strong against witches mm -hmm. uh, snow white certainly yep. i think is by this point is has learned uh, anti-witch powers and if you want a druid obviously that would be Belle. she's good mm -hmm. at, at taming beasts and i think we have to sort of assume that you know this is post their careers in the movies where they all hang out together and stuff. And so the, the toughest one to find is the rogue, right? And I think for that, we would have to go for Jasmine, who would presumably have been taught all of her thief abilities by, by her husband, Aladdin. Right. And so that kind of covers 
all of the major bases. It leaves, you know, some questions unanswered about, you know, Ariel, is she a shapeshifter? Do you have to have only underwater adventures? If someone wants to play Ariel, you have to figure out a way to make her a, uh, a character that uh, would work. But the idea here would be that you would have a template system, uh, which, of course, I've done before, where you just pick the character and go. And, you know, there's a thing in the back about creating your own character and you can customize the character over time. But that that's probably not what people want if they want to sit down and play a Disney princess game. And then we come to that issue that you've already mentioned, which is the degree to which D and D as a, as a brand now that it's become more of a mass market thing is, is unusually bloodthirsty Mm -hmm. for (laughs) a, a major corporate IP. And certainly for the Disney princesses, you would be defeating the bad guys, uh, whatever that means. The descriptions of, you know, what your arrows and swords and stuff were, were doing would have to be kind of tamed a bit. But there's certainly lots of action adventure in Disney feature films to use as a basis. Uh, you could have Aurora, which is the name of Sleeping Beauty. Uh, she could be sort of a specialist fighter with an anti-dragon bonus. Mm-hmm. Get her in there. And so it would be about, you know, exploration, finding things. You know, you could help Bambi when uh, Maleficent uh, begins to encroach on Bambi's uh, nature preserve and uh, you're exploring having adventures. The mass acquisitiveness of D&D, I think you would also want to, you know, that you're gathering uh, spell points or something. That's literally the Disney IP, not the princesses yes, the, IP. The, the acquisitiveness happens in the corporate right, program, yes. not in not That's in if you're game. playing, you know, Bob Iger. <laughs> right. Now, that is something that you could then take, and then later on down the line, well, if this one is actually successful, then... You know, we can have the, the Marvel version or the Muppet version or, or what have you. Uh, certainly, I think, uh, you know, I think Animal would be a, a welcome addition to any party. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. As would Miss Piggy, martial artist. Monk, technically, although not the monastic kind of monk. Yeah, so you could uh, kick pretty much any Umber Hulk across the room, I would think. Mm-hmm. So that would be the basic pitch, and it would take all of the time-honored structures of F20 and fold them into uh, something that I think would be, would have an immediate thing that would make sense to uh, people and help them make sense of role-playing even more than an introductory D&D book does. I mean, I absolutely think that the Disney princesses role-playing can be the first core book that comes out for Magic Kingdoms. I think that that's, nothing you've said contradicts anything that I pitched with Dandy Dances and Magic Kingdoms. And I, yes. I well, feel like, be it for me. as always, Robin, you and I are working in sync to produce an idea so compelling, so powerful, that, frankly, we should maybe head into a commercial and just wait for uh, Bob Iger to pick up the phone. The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders, but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe one-to-one system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need 
to run a one-player, one-GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. That can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press web store. Or drive through RPG. The fetid tang of animalistic beasts, the growling out in the wilderness, the raking of claws against the side of this most fortified of huts tells us that we're in the hut that is set up to protect us, Ken, from monsters. Because there's one thing monsters don't like, and it's being discussed in a hut. They don't. Uh, But since we've got a nice strong hut, we can therefore go on to entertain a question by beloved Patreon backer Toonspew, who asks... What sort of twist would you put on the mythology of the unicorn to make it a monster as frightening as any Shoggoth or vampire? So uh, this is a a great uh, sort of central concept because we think, particularly today, of the unicorn as being a symbol of uh, purity and goodness, usually portrayed as such in uh, F20, therefore not that exciting. And, of course, if you go back before... Uh, mythology got uh, buffed up a little. Ken, you found a whole bunch of references to people who are really scared of unicorns, which must suggest that they're already terrifying monsters. Exactly. To begin with, we should give a big shout out to the guy who apparently listened to this podcast in the future and went back in the past to 2013 and wrote a story about it. Charles Strauss wrote a great little uh, short story called Equoid, which is in his Laundry Files universe, and indeed has a a unicorn that is basically a dark young of Shubnagorath. And if that is the unicorn you want, holy cow, is that a good unicorn? So I don't know if we, maybe if we have time, we can come back and talk about the specific nature of Charles Strauss's equoid, but I kind of don't want to spoiler it for people and uh, do that. Robin, do you, what do you think? I say read equoid. Let's not yeah. spoil stories people have. No, exactly. So when we talk about the unicorn, we're talking about a bunch of different monsters that all got sort of jambled up together in the, you know, sort of the early Middle Ages when they've, everyone's got their list of monsters and some, you know, early Gary Gygax is putting them all together and uh, they're saying, well, this is obviously the same critter. Catesius gets us started by coming back from India and saying they have a very, very strong horned animal kind of like a horse, got four feet, but it'll mess you up, and uh, it's good against poison. That's what I know about a unicorn. And in the Bible, they have a creature called the Ram, which is a horned creature that cannot be tamed. Uh, God compares himself slightly favorably to the Ram, and he says, you know, the Lord has got the strength of a unicorn. And uh, in Isaiah, the Ram is a little bit apocalyptic, The translation is, and the unicorns, the ram, shall come down with them and the bullocks with their bulls and their land shall be soaked with blood and their dust made fat with fatness. That doesn't sound good if your land is soaked (laughs) with blood. Yeah, I'm not sure how the dust being made fat with fat, I guess people's fat tissues. That's the fat of all the dead people lying around just making the dust fat. And then there is the Arabic legend of the Karkadan. And according to Al-Biruni, who writes down the Karkadan for the first time, when the Karkadan is in a certain territory, no other animal will graze anywhere in that territory. The Karkadan is the natural foe of the elephant. It's the only animal tough enough 
to fight an elephant. It's a big, dangerous, horned, horse-like animal. So all of these things sort of get jostled around and everyone in the West anyway says, well, this is just the unicorn. Everyone's talking about the unicorn. And so we know that the unicorn is like God. We know that it stops poison. We know that it's very, very tough. Uh, Nothing else can stop it. But that sounds to early medieval bestiarists like a sin. And the only thing that can stop sin, of course, is the sacrifice of a virgin. So you you put a, a young woman out there and the unicorn will gentle down. He'll put his head in her lap and then you can leap out from behind the shrubbery and kill the unicorn and take his horn and, uh, you know, keep your dinner safe from poison thereafter. Right. And presumably you have to, you can't tell the girl that you're doing this because otherwise she would then lose her purity and her ability to attract unicorns. Right. Yeah. She has to be sort of the, um, uh, the stool pigeon in this situation, but she can't know it necessarily. So by the 12th century, you have the sort of uh, differentiation is made. There's a poet named Lamprecht, a, a Minnesinger named Lamprecht, who has uh, the Alexander Lida about the uh, historical uh, Alexander the Great, or rather the fictional Alexander the Great, whose Bucephalus horse is descended from a unicorn. And Lamprecht in a sidebar says, no man yet of woman born endures the terror of his horn. So even the horn itself contains something terrifying. And so my theory is that unicorn horns don't stop poison by being good. They stop poison by being the strongest poison around. And like a magnet, they slurp up all the poison around into it and become even more terrifying. And so that's how unicorn horns work. They're not, you know, beautiful, pure anti-poison things. They're literally a concatenated essence of all that is poisonous, venomous, and dangerous attached to this all we know is almost as strong as God thing. And quite frankly, we are now beginning to head into that apocalyptic REM territory that we talked about earlier, I believe. Right. And I guess we have to, at this point, quote our own t-shirt mm-hmm. and think about the rhino, who's, of course, a, a unicorn with a better armor class. Right. And I think we're probably realizing that perhaps these Northern European writers hearing about this horse-like creature with powerful ability to resist poison, i.e. like a thick armor plate, Mm -hmm. that if we want to make our uh, unicorn somewhat scarier looking, instead of a beautiful white horse with a lovely little bit of a narwhal horn on it, I guess we're looking at something uh, which is extremely terrifying somewhere on the spectrum between a horse and a rhino. And uh, if it is full of sin, if it, it sort of gathers up uh, ambient sin and and turns it into poison, it would sort of give off an, a poisonous aura. And one of the threats then would be that uh, how do you how do you stab this thing because its blood is essentially uh, a poison? You don't want it to spray on you. If it is more malign, if it has been taken over by the sins, of course, the whole thing about bringing uh, a young uh, virgin to attract it. Uh, well, maybe they just like to eat them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe you've got some wrong information. Perhaps. Spread by the unicorn itself, because I think that essentially, uh, and these things may have started out being good, perhaps created for a good purpose, and slowly over time as they absorb more and more sin, become more monstrous and uh, rhino-like and bigger and more terrifying, and that the question of how you actually dispose of them is the real problem, and they're mad. They feel that they were uh, they were tricked into becoming sin eaters. They resent 
all of the toxic behavior that they've been absorbing and they want to let it out again and uh, it pains them to absorb people's sin. And so what they're doing is they, uh, once one arrives, once one senses you, it has a certain amount of time to uh, figure out which person in, say, the adventuring party is uh, redolent with sin and go and target them for the uh, stomping and goring attack. And uh, now that it's beginning to look more like a big, hideous, rhino-like creature, I think that goes a long way to uh, making it more uh, terrifying. And it's starting to, in F-20 terms, kind of becoming more of a bullet. Yeah. And the notion, uh, Toonsview mentions a vampire, and you can certainly have the notion that this horrible, chaotic, sinful, with the overlapping armor plates and the giant warts and nobbins, is its sort of monster form. but because it can approach and, you know, hunt out sin, you can't find a lot of sin if everyone, you know, chases you out into the countryside. It can appear as a horse, right? That it has that, you know, vampire-like ability. So it looks like a horse. Maybe it's just, it's, you know, hypnotic power makes you think it's a horse. Maybe it actually is a shapeshifter. Maybe, you know, it's something about, you know, uh, the more innocent you are, the more horse-like it looks or Maybe that's not connected to it. Uh, I am reminded, Robin, of uh, your mention of feeding the virgin to it to calm it down uh, made me think of the mares of Diomedes from Heracles' labors, which, if you remember, the way that he tamed the mares of Diomedes was feed them Diomedes. Um, (laughs) Said they're like, well, now I'm so full. All right, I guess I'll drag your chariot. Whatever, Hercules. Good for you. And in some versions, he also left his servant Abderus there and said, watch these mares while I go, you know, clonk Diomedes on the head. And Abderus is like, gosh, I hope I'm not some sort of snack or appetizer. That would be terrible. And Hercules is like, well, if you are, I'll build a city here and name it after you. Abderus is like, well, you can't ask for better than that from Hercules. So the notion that feeding the unicorn a sinless person slows it down right it's it it you know i guess no one is truly sinless but if you're mostly sinless then that would be literally because it 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 uh, becomes gravid with the poisons of and sins that it eats if it eats something that isn't that it's either maybe it's like choking it or maybe it is ironically like poisoning it but for whatever reason it it just it can't metabolize that and so you maybe it goes quiescent or it it slows down its uh, relentless approach uh, to murder you. Now, throwing an innocent virgin into the path of a unicorn is itself a pretty big sin. So I don't think that you're solving the problem that way. You're just sort of putting off the trampling and goring, as you mentioned. Right. Now, it may be the thing that if we want this to be truly evil, it is absorbing uh, not only sins, but it absorbs virtues. And so in this version, it is attracted to the young person who hasn't done anything bad yet because it is going to absorb their virtue and uh, sort of a balm. It uh, salves the uh, constant pain that they're in from having all of these poisonous sins uh, going through their body so that at that point, the unicorn does actually become uh, sort of vulnerable in that might be a little stoned. It's less poisonous. Uh, Maybe you can succeed in spearing it at that point. But then... The problem is the person that you've used as bait has had all of the goodness sucked out of her. And uh, perhaps that is an opportunity for the uh, evil to get into her and, and for her then uh, to become sort of the, the Renfield of other unicorns and go off. Right. And, uh, you know, either to later, uh, you know, reconnect with that particular unicorn and uh, stage 
all sorts of evil or, you know, go off, find another one if you succeed in killing that one. And this brings in the, the other possibility that if the unicorns unwillingly absorb sin, that perhaps they are actually aware of whose sins they're absorbing and what sins those are. And that once it has a coterie of formerly virtuous uh, human servitors, they can go into the city and say, well, let me tell you what the king did. Right. Because the, the unicorn knows what you did, which mm. is why you want to kill it. <laughs> among other reasons. But. Yeah, among other reasons. But that's if you're a king, that's pretty high on the, yeah, your, your right. list, right? Oh, yeah, he's am- rampaging. He's destroying the crops. That's bad. He's disrupting the economy. What? He, he knows what I did to my cousin. Ah, no, I, I needed that cousin out of the way so I could ascend to the throne. Oh, oh people can't know that. Kill the unicorn. Kill it. And so from there, that provides the possibility of, you know, what if you go and talk to the unicorn or talk better, you know, I suppose better to talk to the, the human intercessor. Yeah, better talk and, to the uh, unicorn maid. Yeah. And say, well, we can, uh, we know this village where a lot of people are really good. And you can go sort of hang around in the periphery of the village and just to, don't turn everybody evil. Just absorb a little bit of everybody's goodness. Or, you know, you can hang around outside the service to the celestial beings or or we can give you some, you know, there may be uh, ambrosia or some other uh, substance that's imbued with the essence of uh, virtue that you could uh, use to... Uh, either drug or, uh, in this instance, buy off the, uh, the unicorn who knows everybody's secrets. Yeah. I mean, once you have a, uh, the, the level of, of, of knowledge that is inherent in this, you know, knowing people's sins, and maybe that's what their unicorn maids provide is the knowledge, right? That, that, that I see them as sort of a mated pair, uh, couple almost that the maid provides the sort of the human interface and the ability to focus this knowledge of sins because, you know, that's one of the things that she gets out of the transference is to be able to sniff out, oh, the king is definitely involved in this. Or maybe you ate the guy that the king sent to kill his cousin, whatever it is. She has that ability. And I feel like this notion that, you know, the unicorn is seeking out the maid. And I guess the reason it hates elephants is that elephants are the purest and most sinless of animals. I mean, I think that we've all agreed on that. So maybe that's, you know, in the, in the wild, that's what they would go after. And that's sort of their natural prey. And then in, you know, it, once you have human society, they begin to go after um, sinless young women. And that's their, you know, sort of ability to magically mate is, uh, and eventually, you know, the, uh, one of the unicorn maids becomes so gravid with all of the trouble that she's causing that she sort of, you know, bursts out into being a new unicorn and the process begins over again. You've also found a historical reference to a uh, unicorn milk. Yes. From the Arthurian poem, the Chevalier of Papago, he meets a giant in the course of his adventures who has been bred on unicorn milk and the notion of a, a teratogenic unicorn milk that produces this horrible giant. Uh, I think that's, again, our sort of notion that this unicorn is containing sort of it is gravid with sin and corruption and all this other stuff. And if you feed its milk to someone, then rather than just growing up a normal person, they grow up a, a, a literal monster, right? Right. So it has a substance. Mm-hmm. Its human mate can sell and pass along to other people or trade. Uh, it's probably a, a commodity among the evil, something that can help you breed a giant mm-hmm. or uh, presumably other monsters as well. So uh, that also suggests a way that it can sort of operate not just in the wilderness uh, where it's mad at elephants, but also 
create an interaction with uh, the society in your uh, F-20 world. And in your F-20 world, if we have the unicorn that can turn into a horse, it can just live in the livery stables and every now and again eat a stable boy, who, by the way, are often full of sin, uh, as we are told by medieval times. But in a modern world, it could, you know, be in a police-mounted unit, which is uh, a little something I picked up from Eckwood. But, you know, it could be one of those horses that takes uh, people around the park in a little romantic clip-clop clip. And, you know, one of that couple is probably sinnier than the other couple. And so... The uh, unicorn is is figuring out who it's going to run down later. Right. Well, now that we've turned uh, something virtuous into something evil and terrifying, our work in the monster hut is done. I'm sure the monsters will be happy with us now and won't bash down our hut. But let's nonetheless, out of an abundance of caution, find another hut. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep our kingdom magical by joining such supercalifragilisticexpialidocious backers as... Joshua Hillerup. Derek Heimforth. Eric Parks. Evan Hughes. And Garrett Fitzgerald. The smell of popcorn, the whir of the projectors, and the layer of uh, congealed uh, dried Pepsi sticking our shoes to the floor tell us we're once more in the cinema hut and not just once more in the cinema hut but in the middle of our science fiction cinema essential series we're up to installment five we're up to the early 50s and it's going to take us a while to get through the 50s because as we covered last time around this is the real flowering of the genre and so there's a lot of there's they're bankable now they're making money there's drive-ins to go and see them at where they wouldn't necessarily play the swanky movie palaces and people are worried about the future they're worried about invasions from a, a, a force outside them uh, so there's lots still lots of uh, cold war uh, metaphors to deal with because we're at the height of the cold war the first one though that we're going to mention is again a precursor i'm not even sure there's another banger that is a precursor of but it's a precursor of a bunch of other films including you know recent roland emmerich things uh, and that is the global catastrophe. And in this case, it's Rudolf Maté's 1951 film, When Worlds Collide, which is basically a chance to see a lot of cool uh, models get hit with rocks and uh, flood and stuff because a um, meteor shower 
strikes the earth and uh, destruction reigns. Yeah, the other thing that I think is important about uh, When Worlds Collide is that it's after Destination Moon, it is the first big spectacle piece, and Destination Moon spectacle is relatively static. This is the first spectacle piece of George Pal, who would be one of the founders of science fiction cinema and the the precursors, the creators of, of what we know. In a lot of ways, the 50s are the 30s for science fiction film. The 30s, they established all of our universal horrors. They built virtually all the templates that horror would go through. The 50s are doing that for science fiction, and George Pal is one of the big architects of that. When Worlds Collide, I don't know, holds up as well as other pals do. I would not necessarily, you know, say it's an essential in the way that some of these films are, but it's definitely, it, it is, as you say, the, the, the father of half of Roland Emmerich's movies is When Worlds Collide. Now, fully in the canon, fully a banger. Fully an uh, essential. The William Cameron Mency film that I will definitely uh, prop for all day long is 1953's Invaders from Mars. Uh, there's a young boy realizes that an alien invasion is in progress in his little sleepy town. As we said before, Menzies uh, was a production designer primarily, so the visuals in this and the use of a sort of weirdly colored, eerie technicolor definitely prefigure the works of Mario Bava in the technicolor horror realm a little later. And emotionally, it is not just about distrust, but about that horrible distrust that the the young discovered that they can't be trusted and cannot trust uh, their parents. And uh, he discovers that lots of adults in the area are have already been uh, uh, cousined by the aliens and are part of the invasion. There's a extremely striking, cool alien at the end. And uh, the feeling of that is definitely one that exists on the boundaries of horror, but clearly is, is a essential uh, science fiction film. Yeah, it's um, there's so much going on in Invaders from Mars. The remake in the 80s, I think was by Tobe Hooper, was also very, very good. But the original is remarkable for how many sort of avant-garde approaches it takes uh, as a film. It's still a 1950s quick produced movie. But uh, as we talked about with William Cameron Menzies, it looks amazing for what it is. And it is definitely the sort of, you know, evil stepfather of E.T. in that uh, Kids on Bikes begins with Kids on Bikes recognizing that there's nothing but horrible monsters out there and that their parents are at best clueless. It's uh, a beautiful example of paranoia as well in film, which is another big, uh, uh, you know, leitmotif or baseline, however you want to put it, of science fiction film ever since the early 1950s. Uh, Robin, you put this one on the list. It came from outer space, Jack Arnold, 1953. Uh, this is like, what if Invaders from Mars, but not as mean? Uh, it's based on a Ray Bradbury story. Uh, I don't think that it works now remotely as well as Invaders from Mars, but do you want to plug for it We're just mentioning it because I think in a way it is more the prototypical alien invasion movie yeah but it can be prototypical and not yeah. be uh, in both face so and again it's not really um invasion so much it, the, the aliens are good uh, or at least not overtly evil they're just lost they're trying to get home this really is where et's you know this is et's you know n less wicked stepmother i guess is it came from outer space but again it's also not a patch on invaders from mars However, the George Powell movie that I will absolutely defend against all comers is Byron Haskin, 1953, The War of the Worlds, which is 
absolutely the best War of the Worlds movie, even if H.G. Wells came screaming up out of his coffin by the ending, which strongly implies that the cold germs that kill the Martians are only there because God put them there. Thank you. <laughs> you know, just created the world. That's all. No, no, don't bother to thank God. Yeah, let's stick some intelligent design on the end of this. Exactly. Movie. But speaking of intelligent design, though, Robin, the, the, the alien tripods, they lose their legs. They become this very creepy manta looking spaceships that fly around. The sound design is just amazing that um, the alien sort of ray makes the, the most horrible chittering machine gunny ray gun sound. The human characters uh, fleeing in terror are uh, instantly sympathetic. Uh, I think George Pell was always pretty good at that. And it's just a spectacle of a movie. And to see those aliens just, you know, obliterate Los Angeles is a it, it's one of the you know it, it makes all of the other George Powell movies sort of snap into perspective because this is when he did it best and I don't think even Steven Spielberg was able to get the emotional gut punch out of War of the Worlds that Byron Haskin did under the benevolent gaze of George Powell. Yes, absolutely. The the horror of the invasion, the alienness of it, the eeriness, and it's really amazing what uh, Powell, who was. I think more focused on, on the effects than on the execution of the rest of the movie, that this is the apogee of his work. And they are uh, genuinely still scary and unnerving, even though looking at it in 1953 practical effects, you initially go, Oh yeah, this is all models. And then all of the stuff that you talked about kicks in. And so uh, this is another example of a brilliantly realized classic uh, science fiction novel. And now we come to another from, of all people, uh, Disney. It's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, directed by Richard Fleischer. This is from 1954. And this is just a splendidly realized, big-budget, 50s entertainment that really brings home the whole vision of uh, Captain Nemo and the Nautilus. The squid attack on the ship is a classic cinematic experience, and it has... A-list stars, and most notably uh, Kirk Douglas. And so this is one that I saw as a, as a kid in a matinee in a, in a revival, and uh, I think really holds up. And just as the War of the Worlds is the best War of the Worlds, this is still by far the best 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And uh, you say Kirk Douglas, I say James Mason as easily the best Captain Nemo that's ever been. Peter Laurie is in it, for gosh sakes. Uh, we're talking about, as you say, a, a banger of a cast. This The production design... Uh, on the Nautilus literally created the steampunk aesthetic by itself. Uh, so it's hugely influential on that level. And it's uh, a rip roaring version of a novel that is mostly a lengthy visit to SeaWorld um, as a novel. And then uh, the Disney people said, you know what this means? More explosions. And uh, <laughs> yes, well, Walt did know how to punch up the story. Exactly. You're absolutely right. Uh, Fleischer's 20,000 Leagues still works. Uh, it's still a complete, you know, inner 10 year old 1954 gets on that Nautilus and goes and you never get back. We talked about a Jack Arnold film before that didn't quite make the essentials list. Well, Creature from the Black Lagoon definitely does. This is in the mold of expedition goes uh, into remote place, finds monster, which leads me to think that we actually should have mentioned King Kong back in the thirties <laughs> because that we were counting Lost World as a science fiction film. So King Kong definitely retroactively has to be on the list. We covered that in more detail in horror. We covered Creature 
in more detail on horror because I think the thing about it is that is most memorable is the sort of dreamlike version of the horrible creature who just wants to be loved. But the uh, feeling of being underwater with this and uh, it's, whether you see it flat or in its original 3D is quite brilliant and definitely worth seeing whether you're doing a horror retrospective or a science fiction retrospective. Yeah, it does manage to emphasize the alienness of the Gill Man and not so much because, I mean, the Gill Man just wants a damp lady, which I guess everyone in 1954 did. But the Gill Man, because of the way that it's shot, because of the sort of balletic quality uh, to the underwater scenes, and because the actor really has to act, you know, with their full body, that level of alien presence is is really very present in Creature Than Black Lagoon. And it's, I think, part of why it works on that level, maybe even better than King Kong. King Kong, because he's a, an ape, we immediately anthropomorphize him. The creature, although it's obviously hominid because you have to fit a person in it, begins as looking alien. And as we become understanding of its goals, I think that there's a level on which this is a first contact movie, as well as also a sort of uh, creature feature in, in the way that we're, uh, we're talking about in the horror side. Right, of because it. this is about a collision of a scientific expedition and an atavistic creature. Whereas Kong is like a collision of circus people. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> it's, so it's less overtly in that. And so once again, we've gotten a few titles in, but we've got more 1954 to get through, uh, which we'll do uh, next week as we once again, pick up our science fiction cinema essential series. But for the moment uh, we've got, uh, I predict something strange on the other side of this commercial. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation Ugh! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlath Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. We're in a misty territory, nebulous in outline, uncertain in quality. It could be anything. It could be magic. It could be conspiracy it could be secret history we don't know oh but no we just heard the alien big cat howling on the moor that leads us to the terrace where the nordic alien and the uh, gray alien are sipping their kombucha 
and looking disdainfully indoors. And once we go indoors, we recognize once more we're in the confines of the Elliptony hut. And here in the Elliptony hut, we are in a, I don't want to say down market, but I'm going to say, you know, a little bit tatty. Maybe there's a piano in the corner. You know, it's a British 1960s, but not the cool 1960s, the tatty thing that the Beatles were about getting away from 1960s, because we're talking about a book that uh, graces Ken's bookshelf and that Robin not just found for me at foils, but also has apparently rushed right out and read ahead of me the Premonitions Bureau. Uh, and we're talking about the actual bureau itself. But the book that spawned our interest is by a guy named Sam Knight. It just came out in uh, last year and it's uh, it's a doozy, but it's one of those sort of, you know, lots of human stories, not quite as sensationalistic as one hopes we can make it. Once we're finished with it, yeah. there'll be some sensationalism in it. And since it's the 60s, there'll be some uh, some Cthulhu's wearing Nehru collars, I'm right. sure. Some fall of Delta Greens. Exactly. So this is a story of Dr. John Barker who is a psychiatrist and also a uh, member of the SPR, the British uh, Society for Psychic Research. And he was an Eliptonist from way back. So he straddles the line, as so many do, between Eliptony and science. And so uh, even as a young man, he was off going off to the Borley Rectory to engage in uh, ghost hunting. But he was trained as a psychiatrist, and he went to work somewhat to his disappointment and frustration at the Shelton Hospital in Shrewsbury in the UK. And this was a real sort of Dickensian institution. Uh, All of the psychiatric facilities in the UK at this time were far, far out of date and were just basically prisons for mentally ill people. And he, of his day, was of a reformist stripe. Uh, now, when we look back on him, he will also be sort of a figure that will make you stroke your chin and go, hmm, because one of his primary treatments that he wanted to give people was shock therapy. Mm. And so he became quite famous, for example, for curing a man of infidelity by electrically shocking him. <laughs> and he mused that, you know, with the fine therapeutic benefits of uh, electroshock, women would be happy with their housework. Uh, teens would stay at home. And I guess I, as a teen, I would have stayed at home if there was a threat of being electrically shocked. So today's reader (laughs) has to balance John Barker as reformer versus this is the, this is his reform. (laughs) This is his reform. Well, fortunately, no reformer has ever come up with a problem, a solution that was worse than the problem, Robin. This would be a one, one off case. Now at the same time that he was pioneering this, he was also still very much interested in, for example, death by nocebo, that people who basically psychosomatically became so terrified that they eventually died. And he picked up on other studies that talked about this in other so-called primitive cultures. And he said, well, this happens in the Western world too. And he began to study that and write about that and prepare a book that he would publish in a few years. But the real turning point in the story is the Aberfan disaster in the village of the same name in Wales, when a massive pile of coal refuse liquefied essentially and rushed as an avalanche through a Welsh town and buried much of the town. And it was a a big traumatic event for the UK. Barker was actually on the scene as a uh, a rescuer, as as a first responder, as we would say now. And because he had this interest in 
psychic research, he asked himself, I wonder if anyone predicted this. And he did a little research and he found out there were a whole bunch of people who were prone to prediction, who either claimed afterwards to have sensed Aberfan, or one of them, a guy named Alan Hencher, who was a, a post office worker, had told people of this terrible dream that he had had so they could corroborate the fact that he sensed something was going to happen along the lines of Aberfan. And so at that point, Barker hooks up with the science reporter from the Evening Standard, a man named Peter Fairley. Uh, he's going to call him uh, called the world of science. And as the decade goes on, he'll be more and more involved in covering space travel for the British press. So he sort of becomes the the Walter Cronkite or whoever the specialized space reporter who, who used to talk to Walter Cronkite was. He becomes the UK version of that. But he's also interested in this project to scientifically study premonitions. And so under the auspices of the Evening Standard, they set up uh, this thing where they invite people to send in their predictions. And about 100 people do. They find seven of interest. But the two that really have a biggest hit rate are a music teacher named uh, Kathleen Middleton and Hencher, who we've already mentioned. And for both of them, they, you would think, oh, well, you know, predicting stuff is, is a scam. You put enough predictions out there. Some of them hit. And when you do, you take credit for it. And next thing you know, you're, you're a geller. But the thing about both Middleton and Hencher is... They don't like this ability. They <laughs> both report pretty severe physical symptoms that accompany the uh, sense that a disaster is coming. And they especially don't like the publicity that begins to attend to them or just the fact that they now have to concentrate on these feelings, which they both think makes them happen more often. And it turns out it actually sucks to be predicting d disasters because you never predict them well enough to prevent anything. But nonetheless, Hencher predicts an imminent airline crash and correctly names the death toll of 124 people. Middleton correctly predicts an astronaut in trouble shortly before the cosmonaut Vladimir Komarov dies. And both of them predicted a railway crash headed into central London that then occurred. And so the problem, of course, is as I specified, is that None of it is specific enough that you can actually do anything about do anything, it. warn anybody, actually prevent them, which was Barker's sort of initial uh, naive idea. Uh, even if you did, right, the authorities aren't going to shut down all rail lines headed into London because a couple of self-described psychics are getting headaches. And this goes, I guess, to my own theory that it may well be that some psychic abilities exist, but that there will never be more measurable or more useful than they currently are. That, that they're just sort of off in the margins is a sort of a weird little detail, but you'll never be able to operationalize them the way that Barker anticipated. He publishes his book, Scared to Death, about the people who think so much about death or being cursed that they uh, die. I don't know if that's in your library or not, Ken. No. Nope. And 1968 turns out to be a, a pretty tough year. Uh, in February, there's a, a fire at the Shelton Hospital that really exposes just how uh, horrible and ill-trained and, and dangerous the place is, and a lot of people die or are injured. And that sort of puts Barker, who's already sort of a, a, a tough nut of a character and kind of a brooder, that puts him into a, a terrible frame of mind because, you know, he's been 
focused on predicting disasters. Well, why didn't any of his predictors predict this in time to prevent it? Something that in retrospect seems very preventable, yet still happens. Mm -hmm. During that year, both Hancher and Middleton are warning him that something really bad is going to happen to two people. They both tell him repeatedly that something really bad is going to happen to Robert F. Kennedy and also to him. <laughs> and of course, you did not have to be a psychic to predict that Robert Kennedy was possibly in danger as he campaigned for president. He, like his brother before him, said, well, you can't be in politics, um, be afraid. So I'm just going to not take security precautions. And we know, and on June 6th, of course, he was murdered by an assassin. And not long after, about six weeks later, Barker himself, the author of Scared to Death, about premonitions of, of death coming true, has a brain hemorrhage and dies. And uh, Middleton, although she didn't document this ahead of time, she'd warned him a bunch of times that he was in danger of death. But she says that she'd had a episode of terror that coincided with the moment of his sudden death. And uh, there's a lot more to the human side of the story. As you can imagine, the hospital administrators at Shelton thought of Barker as a publicity hound, loose cannon, who made them look bad, and he was in constant conflict with them. They did not like particularly the uh, lurid cover that the uh, American publisher put on Scared to Death, <laughs> and they certainly didn't like all of this whole uh, psychic jazz. So that's the actual story as it exists, I think, is a fascinating sort of window uh, into a particular time and place and the, uh, the frustration involved and the idea that you will actually ever use psychic premonitions for anything. But Ken, I'm sure that puts you in mind of a bunch of things that could be happening when a Delta Green team goes to meet Dr. John Barker and uh, perhaps get some predictions from Hincher or Middleton. Yeah, I mean, we've, I feel like we've already talked about the J.W. Dunn experiment in time where he asked everyone to write down their dreams and use those to predict the future. And, and that was an influence on Barker. Right. And then there was a, a, a gigantic wave of that going on in the, coincidentally, 20s and 30s, which provides us with an interesting rhythm to our somewhat more scientized, although J.W. Dunn thought himself as a scientist, version of the same basic, let's crowdsource psychic powers and uh, specifically premonitions. And I, I, I like the notion that J.W. Dunn set something up and that it's run by Pisces, the, you know, British uh, anti-Cthulhu team. And that Pisces, of course, being a British government uh, espionage agency, is leaky. And that John Barker gets a hold of the Pisces program. And along with the notion of people dying of invisible magical ailments is sort of either a, um, he's trying to, you know, subtly, a leak Pisces stuff and threaten them from his position. He's a psychiatrist. He's obviously could be wired in. As you mentioned, he was in the society for psychical research. So he's connected to one of their front groups. This could be either a Pisces defector, a Philip Agee uh, of the future of, of the psychic world, or it could be a Pisces program that gets spun out of control and goes rogue and creates a problem. And that his mysterious death may either be just the natural uh, result of trying to mythos up your premonition powers, or it may have been Pisces putting a literal curse on him to kill him invisibly uh, and, and an attempt to tie the whole thing off. So what I think this is, 
is rather than the characters being Delta Green in this particular case, I think it's more fun if the characters are sort of the other part of London, the, the swinging, groovy part of London that this is not about, and that they're sort of the, you know, photographer from Blow Up, maybe, or an occult investigator or something, and this becomes their way into Pisces, and they're like, oh, there's a British government group that's doing all this stuff, and then they can do the investigation and discover, oh, not only is there's this group, but also they themselves are being corrupted by horrible alien psychic influence, because that spoiler is what happens to Pisces uh, later on in the continuity. And so I think this is almost better left to itself as an anti-Delta Green op, right? Or the structurally an anti-Delta right. Green op, so, right? So the mission is investigate the death of Dr. John Barker, mm-hmm. allows you to find Hensher and Middleton, talk to Peter Fairley, and I assume uh, that you have to protect uh, Hensher and Mild- Middleton yeah. from... Uh, whatever force it is that is trying to uh, prevent uh, mere humans from perceiving the uh, motions of disaster that might be stirred up by various uh, mythos entities and cults. And you can tie it into the Yithians. The notion of, you know, Yithian contamination is what, you know, touched Hensher or Middleton, and that's why they're a little bit unmoored in time. You can tie it into the Shan insects that are outside time and space in that way and give the viewpoint. Or it could just be that a gross British military bureaucracy, Pisces, now that they've killed Barker, they're like, well, we've got that loose cannon out of the way, but let's bring Hensher and Middleton in and put them, you know, in a box somewhere in Scotland and make them tell the future for us and weaponize their ability. And your job is to keep them safe from uh, Pisces and let them give up their involuntary but ever-strengthening Yithian connection that gives them this horrible power, right? Right. And if one of you happens to be named Quatermass, you know, so much the better. Another bonus point. Quatermass, you know, certainly I think is more pro-Pisces than anti, but certainly you could be his uh, rebel daughter Paula, who is in continuity, by the way. And, uh, you know, Paula Quatermass, she can get her dad to do things, but she doesn't see eye to eye with him. Uh, He's cold and scientistic, and she's about the human, man. Yeah. And she's just come from a Yardbirds concert. Exactly. She very much has. Uh, Well, I think we've done our job well here. I I predict, however, that this very podcast episode is about to end. But I also predict, Ken, that there'll be another one a mere seven days from today. Don't strain your powers, Robin. Uh, I'm getting a headache. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Askvagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from the stab of the anti-unicorn alongside such virtuous backers as... Hyperlexic. Jonathan Donald. James Kiley. John Buckley. And Todd W. Olson. Wear this show or drink from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our new classic design, Unicorn with a Better Armor class. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>